Thank you, Pastor James and Diane. Now we're going to be continuing on our sermon series, Journey with Jesus. One of our elders here, Daniel, is going to be heading into the passage of Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. So if you could get your Bibles ready, we're going to um, have a Bible reading from that passage now. Good morning, church. My name is Lynette Perrett. I lead up the library and resource centre ministry at church. And this morning I'm going to read the Bible reading. It's taken from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. And I'll be reading it from the NIV. Luke 16, 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. In January 1996, the Church of England issued a theological report on the topic of hell. A report that rejected the idea of hell as a place of fire and unending agony, describing it instead as annihilation for those who reject the love of God. The report says, Christians have professed appalling theologies which made God into a sadistic monster and left searing psychological scars on many and the report concludes with these words hell is not eternal torment but it is the final and irrevocable choosing of that which is opposed to God so completely and so absolutely that the only end is total non-being in other words according to this report issued by the Church of England the concept of hell is not torment, but instead it is just simply ceasing to exist anymore. You see, many evangelical churches have stopped preaching about hell years ago. It makes people uncomfortable, it's too old-fashioned, it's bad for attendance and therefore bad for the offering, and as the report says, it leaves psychological scars on many people. I reckon we've ignored, or at least skimmed over the topic of hell 
to our own detriment and our own peril. I can assure you the devil believes in hell. Right? The demons that Jesus exercised out of people in the Gospels, they believe in hell. In fact, they begged him not to send them there. And so Jesus himself certainly believes in hell. In fact, Jesus mentions hell twice as much as he does heaven in the New Testament. And so here's the thing, right? The focus of today's parable, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the focus is not necessarily hell. Right? I want to make that clear, but, but hell is the setting, it's the backdrop. And so I do think that it needs to be talked about to some degree and not just swept under the rug because it's too uncomfortable or too controversial. Okay, so context, where are we? Remember, back at the beginning of chapter 15, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. But it also mentions that tax collectors and sinners have come along because they're eager to hear what Jesus had to say. Right? They're part of the crowd, they're listening in. Now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're also there. They're kind of off to the side. And they're kind of you know, listening in, they're eavesdropping. Right? What's this guy saying? And every time Jesus says something that they disagree with, they're like, <laughs> look at this bloke. He welcomes sinners. He, he, he sits with them. He, he eats, he breaks bread with these guys. What, what's, what's going on with him? What is this? And so they listen, right? They listen as Jesus tells the parables of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son. And then last week we heard that beautiful parable of the shrewd manager. And the Pharisees, they're still disagreeing. And then Jesus ends that parable with these words. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. And the Pharisees at that point are like, okay, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is just too much. This is, <laughs> this is really getting ridiculous now. Luke 16, verse 14, the Pharisees who, and listen to this, right? This is important. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. You see, Jesus has taken a shot at that area of their lives and their lifestyles that's, that's precious to them, that's important to them. It's the area of finances and, and, and money. Because what does it say? The Pharisees loved money. So when they heard Jesus say that you can't love both God and money or you can't serve both God and money, that totally con contradicted their worldview because they said and they taught that a person could love God and money exactly the same. And they took it a step further and they said that a person's wealth or their lack of wealth was directly connected to their spiritual standing before God. Right? They said that if a person was truly obeying God and His laws, then naturally they'd be rewarded and they'd enjoy a life of prosperity. They believed that godliness and riches went hand in hand. But also on the flip side of that, poverty and sinfulness also went hand in hand. So poor people were simply people who were under the curse of God because of sin in their life, because of their unrighteousness. Do we believe that sometimes? If everything is going your way, if, if the money's coming in, if the mortgage is up to date, you've got your new car, everything's going well, the bills are being paid, 
you're relatively health free, your, your life is relatively free of troubles, then God is pleased with us. Do we believe that? Do we believe that he favours us? And those blessings in our life, those material blessings are, are, are proof or evidence of that favour that he has. Do we fall into the trap of thinking like that, just like the Pharisees did? And the flip side of the coin, if things aren't going our way, right? if we're experiencing poor health, marriage problems, financial issues, do we believe that we're out of favour with God? That there is some major sin in our lives that we need to deal with? And we're not, and so we're, we're not being blessed. And so what does Jesus do here? He confronts this misguided theology by sharing the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But when you think about even that title, right? The rich man and Lazarus, even that's interesting in itself because if this was a story being told today or being relayed to us today, I don't think it would go like this, right? It'd be something like Bill Gates and the poor bloke, Elon Musk and the homeless guy, right? That's how we'd, we'd tell this story. But as we see continually throughout the scriptures, Jesus again flips people's worldview. He completely changes what their priorities are, what's important. When people came to place their offerings at the temple, it wasn't those big donations that impressed Jesus. It was that old lady who gave her last few coins. She was the one that impressed him and she was the one who he commended. And so as we come to the parable, we have this very obvious and very clear contrast between these two men. The rich man and the poor man Lazarus. All right, let's have a look. It says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So there you have it. The rich man was not just considerably well off. His lifestyle was one of extreme extravagance. Just, just what he wore, just his, his clothing, like his wardrobe, it speaks of opulence, right? The fact that he was dressed in purple. Now, let me tell you how this works. I, I found this quite interesting. I, I, I thought, what's this purple business? And so I did a bit of research on it. Now, this was a clothing dye called Tyrian purple. And the word Tyrian refers to Tyre. Uh, a, a city in Lebanon, which we hear about a lot in the Old Testament, Tyre, T-Y-R-E, so Tyrian purple, right? And this dye was made from the secretion, and I've got to read this, right? It's made from the secretion of the hypobranchial gland of several species of sea snail found in the eastern Mediterranean Sea, right? It gets crazier. Now, extracting this dye involved tens of thousands of these poor sea snails. They reckon that uh, it would take 12,000 of them to extract one and a half grams of pure dye. And one and a half grams of pure dye was enough to dye just the trim of a garment. So maybe a robe, just the trim of that robe. <laughs> so the, you can imagine this, this stuff was expensive. It was reserved for the mega rich. And yet our rich friend here, he has a walk-in wardrobe full of clothes dyed in this Tyrian purple and fine linen, it says as well. 
It tells us that this guy lived in complete luxury every day. He was so satisfied in his life that he really had no reason to think about where and how he would, gonna, he, he would spend eternity. He was too busy living the good life. To step back for a moment and to think about what would happen to him once that party was over. Now, just a question for you, and for myself as well, I guess. What is your Tyrian purple? What is it that you have spent a lot of time or a lot of money on that you probably didn't need to? I'll tell you what it is for me. For me, for those of you who, who know me well, you'll know that I love, I love watches. <laughs> and I'm wearing one right now. Looking at this you know, intricate timepiece that, that sits on my wrist just brings a smile to my face. And I've always loved watches since I was a little kid. And, you know, I was thinking the other day, I was, I was, as I was thinking about this um, topic, I was thinking, yeah, I've got two, way too many, right? I've probably got about seven or eight watches at home. I don't need that many. I only need one, really, and maybe a second one if the first one, you know, the batteries go or whatever. But I've got seven or eight. In fact, that's not true because I counted them this morning. I opened my drawer, my watch drawer, and I got to seven, I got to eight, and I kept going. Folks, I've got 14 watches, right? Now, I think about the money that I've spent on those watches, right? It, it goes into the thousands. I'm not going to give you a figure, but it does go into the thousands. And I think about the fact that I don't need that many watches. I just don't. And the money that I spent on them could have been spent on someone who needed that money more than I did. But then I, I also think about the time that I spend just flicking on my phone, scrolling, looking at new watches, new brands, new releases, and just drooling over that stuff. Time spent that could have, hours, I'm talking hours, time that could have been spent a lot better in the Word of God, telling someone about Jesus. Now, I'm not here to tell you to stop or to get rid of your, whatever Tyrian purple is for you in your life, but just think about can you reduce that, the time spent on it and the money that you spend on it. Could it be used better for God's purposes? So that's our rich friend. And on the other hand, we've got Lazarus. And just to be clear, this is not the same Lazarus that Jesus brought back from the dead. But I think it's fitting that his name is Lazarus because the word or the, the name Lazarus means God is my helper. And it's fitting because Lazarus was dependent on God, not on his reputation, not on his wealth, not in his health, because he had none of those things. Right? He was dependent on God and God alone. So this man's a beggar. And every day he's just, he just sits there. He just sits there a stone's throw from the rich man's mansion, just outside his gate, in fact. And he sits there most likely because he's crippled. Right? And he's got some sort of terrible skin condition. We know that because it says that he's covered in sores. And he, he sits there and he, he begs for scraps of food, just a little bit of food, just to get him through that day. And then a bit more to get him through the next day and the next day. And it says that he, he longs to eat the scraps that fall from the rich man's table, a table that's probably a hundred or, or a couple of hundred meters behind him. And now the Jewish rabbis at the time said that there were three conditions or three situations in a person's life that would have resulted in that person having a life that was not even worthy living, or in fact, no life at all. right? And the first condition was one 
who depended on food from another's table. Right? The second condition or, or another condition was one ruled by his wife. <laughs> All right? And the third condition was one who was covered in sores. Right? Fulfilling two out of these three conditions, Lazarus' situation is as desperate as the rich man's is rich and sumptuous. Right? And to add insult to injury, Lazarus has to endure these, these street dogs coming over to him and licking his sores. And, and you think about that, and that would have made him sicker, it would have infected him, but also... By Jewish law, it would have made him ceremonially unclean, right? So the Jews and the rich man, they wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere near Lazarus, right? They would have considered him completely dirty and filthy. Let me tell you, there is no more pathetic scene. And so in contrast to the rich man, Lazarus had all the time in the world to think about death and to think about eternity. He knew that death could come at any moment, either through illness or through starvation. You might be thinking to yourself, okay, all right, Dan, this is a nice story and all, but I just can't identify with either of these two guys. I mean, I'm certainly not a homeless beggar, right? But I don't live a life of luxury either. Now, I'm not going to bombard you with statistics around uh, global wealth, and the inequality that we find there. But let me just give you one quick fact, right? Almost half of the people in this world live on $5.50 or less a day. Now, I spend that much on a coffee. $5.50 or less a day. So we might not have a closet full of Tyrian purple, and linen and fine linen but let me tell you something we're rich we are rich and so the question is are we going to be generous when it comes to our money or are we going to be holding on to it with a tight fist and spending it only on ourselves because we need to get this idea and and, and look i've been thinking about this and and i know how hard it is to think, to change our mindset when it comes to money, right? We've all been conditioned to think, I've worked hard, I've earned my money, it's mine, I can do what I want with it, right? I've earned it, I deserve it. But we need to get that mindset, that way of thinking out of our heads, as hard as that might be. Remember what, what we learned last week. It's not, <laughs> it's not our money. It's been given to us by God and we're simply stewards of that money. Right? Are we utilizing that money in a way that honors God? In a way that helps the poor and the hungry? In a way that helps bring people to the kingdom or at least closer to the kingdom? So let me today issue you and, and, and me, myself, let me issue us with a challenge. Let's not be like this rich man who despite probably being outwardly religious, he disregards the second most important commandment of the law, Love your neighbor as yourself. Even though he passes this poor man every time he walks through this grand gate in front of his mansion, he does nothing to relieve his suffering. 
not a not a coin, not a not a plate of leftover food, nothing. How can this guy who considers considers himself a son of Abraham, this guy who considers himself a blessed member of God's people, as we later learn, how can this guy be so heartless? Right? How could he be so compassionless? You see, there's there were numerous Old Testament scriptures that taught compassion towards the poor and the disadvantaged. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 and 8. God says, If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Did the rich man take scriptures like this, which he and the rest of his culture professed to believe, did he take them seriously? And that's just one of many. Do we take scriptures like this seriously? Do we hold on to our money like it's ours and only ours? You see, the Pharisees, they're listening to this, right? And up until this point, they're on board with this parable. They're like, you know, they're enjoying it. They're like, yeah, yeah, okay, we get it. This is good. It's, it's rich man, poor man. It's opulence and it's misery. It's God's blessing and it's God's curse. This is good. This is the way it should be. This is the way God ordained it. But then Jesus continues and they're shocked. Let me tell you, they are absolutely shocked by what they hear in the next few verses. Once again, their entire worldview is flipped on its head. Have a look at verses 22 and 23. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. <laughs> oh my goodness, what is happening here? The one who is cursed, he dies and he ends up where? He ends up at Abraham's side, i.e. heaven. And the one who is supposed to be highly favored, he ends up where? He ends up in Hades, i.e. hell. Now, there's a lot of visual imagery here around heaven and hell. And there's a lot of debate about whether this imagery is an accurate depiction of what heaven and hell really look like and what they actually um, you know, appear to be like. Um. And then the other side of that debate is whether Jesus used at least some of this imagery in a Jewish setting so that the Jewish people, the audience, would understand it better and so, and so the parable would make more sense to them. Now, personally, I don't think it's, it's helpful to get caught up in all the detail. And so for the sake of simplicity, I'm just going to refer to these two as heaven and hell. Nice and simple. But what we do know is that this concept of angels carrying a person to, to heaven was a very Jewish image as was the idea of being by Abraham's side. Now, this was considered a place of great blessing to be by Abraham's side because it was only reserved for the righteous. And so what you've got here is you've got this massive role reversal. The rich man, materially blessed in life, right? he's in torment and agony in death. And then Lazarus, poverty-stricken, suffering in life, finds himself in paradise in death. There's one thing, again, I want to make clear here. I don't want us to think that the rich man finds himself in hell simply because he was rich. 
right? In fact, notice that he's not even convicted of any great moral sin here. On the other hand, Lazarus is not in heaven because he was humble and poor. And he's not rewarded for some monumental act of righteousness. The rich man is condemned because he was blind to a person dying right outside of his front gate. He was condemned for his casual indifference to Lazarus who was suffering right before his eyes. He was condemned because in his heart he loved his own riches, his own wardrobe of Tyrian purple more than he loved God and more than he loved his fellow Israelite. He was condemned because he lived a life of selfish pride and arrogance. He was condemned essentially because he made himself his own God. And Lazarus, on the other hand, having, not having any material distractions, very simply, and we, we, with childlike faith, he just simply trusted God, right? He lived up to his name. God is my helper, my one and only helper. You see, the message here was clear to the Pharisees who were listening in. They believed they were entitled. They believed that their own righteousness gave them special privileges. Right? They believed that their own righteousness had caused God to bless them with riches and resources. Their wealth was a divine sign that they were just, they were right, and they were holy. And now Jesus is telling them this, right? This is what we're talking about. He's, he's shaking the very foundation of their belief. I'm going to say it again, right? The money and the resources that we have, they're not our own. They're not. Everything is on loan. We are stewards. But here's the thing, right? We are stewards under divine authority. We are under God's authority to reach out and help the poor and the poverty-stricken and the needy. We are also commanded to reach out and help those who materially or materialistically may be okay, but they're in need of emotional help or spiritual help. The truth is that no one should be out of our reach of compassion and grace. And here's, when I think about our street ministry, that's why I love it so much. These guys go out in Blacktown, they go out to Toon Gabby, they go out to Seven Hills and other, other parts of Western Sydney, and they're doing this. They're doing this, what Jesus tells us to do. They're, they're reaching out on the streets to people who, who are homeless and who are destitute, and they're reaching out with food. They're, they're, they're all giving them resources to, to find shelter for the night or for the week. They're, they're giving them words of encouragement. They're opening up the Bible with them and, and, and giving them God's word. Verse 24. So this is the rich man talking to Abraham. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. A couple of things here, right? Firstly, there is no talk of the rich man's total non-being as we read in the report from the Church of England, right? He hasn't simply left this life and then ceased to exist, right? No, he experiences torment and agony. Two very, very uh, intense words, words which are used several times in this parable. He speaks of being in agony in the fire, right? He's in the fire, he's surrounded by fire, 
and he feels the heat of the fire and it causes him agony. And he's so thirsty and so parched in his heat that he, he practically begs Lazarus or begs Abraham to send Lazarus to do what? What does he say? He says, to dip the tip of his finger in water and to cool my tongue. So this is the, think about this, right? This is the same Lazarus who he would have been even, he would have been repulsed to even touch him, to be anywhere near him. And yet now, He's begging to be able to lick some water off his finger. You know, this is probably the first time that the rich guy has had to plead for mercy. In fact, probably the first time he's had to plead for anything. Which brings me to my next point. Notice that he begs for mercy, but nowhere does it indicate that he protests his innocence, right? He doesn't question the severity of his punishment at all. I mean, how often have we pictured hell as a place where people are in are raging in rebellion against God and cursing the injustice of it all. But Jesus pictures it as the opposite because it's it's seen here as a place of of great enlightenment almost. The rich man sees in hell what he never saw on earth. He doesn't rage against injustice, right? He accepts his guilt. It sounds weird to say, I know, but it's almost as if hell it's almost as if hell has made a better man out of him. But he's where it gets really bad for him. And this is where, besides the physical torment, I think this is where the mental torment comes into it as well. The problem is for him, it's too late. Right? It's too late to pray. It's too late to repent. It's too late for him to change his life. The weeping and the gnashing of teeth that Jesus often speaks about fits perfectly with this, this picture of regret and sorrow for living a life without compassion. Now listen to the answer he receives. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. You know, this, this reply from Abraham totally smashes any hope that the rich man may still have held on to. And it's interesting that Abraham calls him son. You see, Abraham acknowledges that this guy, this rich guy, in a, in a, I guess in a racial sense, is a descendant of his. But his heritage, as, as rich as it may have been, it does nothing for him. He was stuck in this torment and this agony for eternity. He's in hell forever. And you know, we often hear people ask the age-old question, how can a loving God... Send people to hell. And the thing is, the way I see it, nice and simple, the thing is that God does not send anyone to hell. You see, God's desire is that all people repent and accept His, his gift and His offer of salvation so that they can enjoy eternity with Him in paradise, in heaven. Listen to what it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, 
as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So do we get it? God doesn't send anyone to hell. Instead, people choose themselves to go to hell when they reject the offer of salvation through Jesus. The rich man in our parable has one final plea. Verses 27 to 29. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. I find it interesting that at this point, the rich man becomes almost, you could say, he becomes a soul winner, right? He develops this missionary spirit or missionary heart. He changes his approach because he realizes that his own situation is hopeless and so he makes an appeal on behalf of his, his five brothers who are still alive and who still therefore have time to repent and still have a chance. And he knows that's exactly what they've got to do. They've got to repent. They've got to do what he failed to do. And it's funny that he becomes an advocate. The rich man becomes an advocate of the very position that Jesus is taking in this parable. He's saying, don't let my bros make the same mistake that I made. Warn them. Warn them that the way I lived and the way that they're living right now ends in disaster. And he doesn't say, Abraham, look, send a theologian to convince him. Send a preacher to preach to them. No, he says, send Lazarus, the one who despite his poverty, despite his sores, send the one who believed in God. Send the one who, who trusted in God instead of money. Send him so he can warn my brothers so that he can share his testimony with them. But Abraham says, nah, that ain't going to happen. A warning from someone who has died isn't necessary. Why? Because your brothers have the law. Your brothers have Moses. Your brothers have the prophets. They've got God's word. And that's all they need to avoid coming where you are now. If your brothers will just read the scriptures, and if they'll just respond to those scriptures, they'll be good, they'll be okay. They have all that is necessary to point them to a life of faith and to point them to a life of righteousness. But the rich man's thinking, no, 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 that's not enough. Moses and the prophets will not bring them to repentance. Scripture is not sufficient. Man, I had Moses and I had the prophets and look where I ended up. No, they need something more spectacular, something miraculous. They need something supernatural. And so he says to Abraham, No, but look, Abe, you've got to send Lazarus because the thing is, if they, if they see someone who they know has died, right? If they see this dead dude come back from the dead and warn them, then they'll get it. Then they'll repent. Now look, we see in this that the rich man is expressing love towards his brothers and his desire to warn them, right? But I also sense an underlying accusation here. I sense that he's saying something like, you didn't give me a fair chance, God. Right? If someone from the dead had come to see me when I was still alive, I would have believed. 
If you had performed a miracle on my behalf, if you have done something spectacular for me, I would have believed, right? I would have repented. And I wouldn't be where I am today. How accurately this parable portrays our human desire for wonders and, and for miracles? We've all asked similar questions, I, I, I reckon. I, I know I have. Why is it so hard to believe? Why doesn't God do more? Why, why doesn't he just open up the heavens and speak to us? Why doesn't he perform as many miracles again like he used to in the Gospels? Why doesn't he send an angel to speak to me? Because if he did, then I would really believe. Then I would truly surrender my life to him and completely trust him because I would have proof. Well, let me tell you something. You don't need a miracle to believe. You don't need a miracle to strengthen your trust in God. When the Israelites were led out of Egypt by God, delivered by his power, they saw numerous miracles. And yet listen to what God says of these same people in Numbers chapter 14, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? How long? The truth is that God has spoken to us through creation, yet people don't see it. God has spoken to us through His Word, yet people don't believe it. God's spoken to us through His Son, and yet people still reject Him. And so Abraham finishes with these words to the rich man. In verse 31, he said, he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And just like that, the rich man's request is denied. And so here's the irony, but also the beauty of this parable for us who live now, who live after the cross. Because that same request that was denied the rich man has been granted to us. Not long after Jesus told this parable, he too would be dead and his lifeless body would be placed in a tomb. A stone would be rolled across the entrance to seal the tomb. And then three days later, God would raise Jesus from the dead. So we have someone who's come back from the dead to warn us to repent. And it is through the resurrected life of Jesus that we can ha have the same sort of life. For eternity. Jesus looks at us and says, If you will surrender to me, if you will trust in me, if you will live for me, then I will take you from ignorance to knowledge. I will take you from darkness to light. I'll take you from death to life. I will save you from hell and I will bring you into paradise with me. You see, Jesus used this parable to shake up the worldview of the Pharisees. May today this parable do the same for us. I encourage you to take some time and think about your own stewardship. I encourage you to seriously examine how we handle the money that God's given to us. And I encourage you to repent and make changes if necessary. But let's not, let's not leave today. Let's not turn off our devices and leave unchanged. Let us not leave today and still be able to, to callously walk past our gates 
focused on only our wants and only our needs. Let us leave today ready to open our hearts, ready to open our arms, ready to open our, our pockets, our wallets, our finances to help those who live just beyond our gates. Let us leave today as the true body of Christ, reaching out to both the rich men in our lives and the Lazaruses in our lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you, you give us and you bless us with so much. Father, help us to change our mindset that what we have, what we've worked for and what we have been blessed with is not ours, but rather it's, it's been given to us by you, it's been gifted to us. And so we are to use that in a way that honors you. Father, help us to do that. Help us to think that way. Help us to, 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 to actually put that practice into our lives and to walk and to live our lives with that mindset, to reach out with compassion and grace to those around us, like your word says, to, to not be tight-fisted, but rather be open-handed, to be ready to, to give to those in need, to, to be ready to spend time with those in need, to be ready to encourage those in need and thereby honor you. And so, Father, we, we pray that we can do this. We pray that we can, we can be those people that are your ambassadors, those people that when people look at us, they go, I reckon that's what Jesus was like. That's the Jesus of the Bible. And Father, help us to think that way and be that way in your strength, Lord. And thank you for everything we have. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.